Joy, what a great theme of the four to get uh, given to preach on during Advent. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her. At this time of year in the mall, at the used car lot, in the movie theater, the grocery store, people from completely different backgrounds all blithely sing and hum along these words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Not only does the typical person singing that not realize what they're saying, the typical Christian who hums along at Dillard's doesn't really think about what we're singing. You see, the authors of the great hymns and carols were meticulous to ensure that their lyrics were perfectly reflective of the deep theology of the word. That's how they survived in the church. Wonder how many ditties of today will be here in 200 years. Notice the depth of it, but what's fascinating is the opening phrase of this song is a powerful statement that actually is the basis for all true joy. I love how uh, the concept uh, Josiah was talking about, the, I think it was Josiah saying the, the kind of the fake joy, the pseudo joy of the season that, that so quickly goes away as the boxes get put away um, and nobody got what they really wanted. Or if you did, it wasn't nearly as good the next day as the first day. All of these kinds of things. Uh, see, in the biblical worldview, Joy doesn't just fall out of the sky. And it's not just pretend because everybody chooses in December of each year, that's when people are going to have joy. Joy actually comes perfectly stated in the theology of the first phrase of the great carol. Within the opening phrase is a powerful statement that's the basis for real joy. Here's your first blanks. Write this in. The deep theology of the great Christmas carol, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. By the way, did you know that got a whole bunch of babies killed in the time of Herod? People don't really want a king. And there's a little Herod inside of everyone, actually. Because the world wants to be in charge. We want to be in charge. We want to be king. We want to be ruler. But notice this, the direct linkage in a fallen world with suffering and calamity and injustice everywhere we look, how can there really be any joy? Well, the answer rings out through the ages. How can there be any joy? Because listen, the baby of Christmas is also the coming king. That's why there can be joy. See, Jesus is going to rule. Jesus is going to reign in power. And this means that Jesus is going to set all things right. There is a day coming when Jesus will be in charge of everything. The choices will have been made and he will reign supreme. So, why can we have joy to the world? Because Jesus is king. You're probably aware that the scope of Scripture about the coming of Messiah is vast. There's over 300 specific messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But along, among all of the prophets, clearly 
Isaiah is the premier voice that foretold the coming of the Savior. None of the other prophets comes even close to the volume that announces the advent of the Redeemer. And this is why Isaiah is so closely tied to the incarnation and thus to the celebration of Christmas. So at this time of year, turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. At this time of year, typically the first passage from Isaiah that comes to mind or gets taught or gets preached on is this amazing passage, uh, messianic passage, and an incredible doctrinal statement of the historic understanding of uh, the Trinity, the Trinitarian view. Isaiah wouldn't have been able to, wouldn't have, wouldn't have known the word Trinity, of course, not even in the Hebrew. Um, but look at this, verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, the king of Israel, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. And he's setting him up to basically say that, you know, there's no way you can ask what I'm going to do because look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us, God within us. So Isaiah is known for his repeated announcements about the coming of Messiah, the, uh, the, the Messiah of Israel. But there's another pattern that also emerges in Isaiah. Throughout the entire book, there are powerful incredible poetic. Most scholars believe that of all the prophets, Isaiah was by far the greatest of the poets. And he describes God's power and his magnificence. I want you to look at a portion of of chapter 40, and I can't read it from the real Bible because I really like the message on this one. So it's going to be on the screen. Look at this from the message from Isaiah 40. This is spectacular. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands or measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? That's a picture, isn't it? Who has put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who has ever told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would he have gone gone to for advice and what school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows or showed him how things work? The nations, the nations, listen, while you're watching the news and your blood pressure's going up, listen, the nations are but a drop from The bucket. Washington does not rule the world. It doesn't rule the nation. It doesn't rule anyone who is ruled by the real king. Look at this. The nations are a drop from the bucket, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the island so much like dust off the floor. All the nations add up to simply nothing before him, less than nothing, but more like it. Ready? A minus. The nations are a minus before God. So who even comes close to being like God? To whom or what will you compare him? Some, I love how he uses this term, some no God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold, and draped in silver filigree. You know that stuff that falls apart? It's so thin. Or perhaps... Someone will select a fine wood that won't rot, then hire a wood carver to make a no-god, giving special care to its base so it won't tip over. Every other god will always tip over, folks. Money, pleasure, power, they all tip over. Fame, they all go away. 
given special care to its base so it won't tip over. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these words all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits above the round ball of the earth. The people look like mere ants. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. So who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says the Lord, the Holy One? Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches his army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls them each by name, so magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one? What an incredible passage about our king. There may be no greater proclamations of the magnificence of God in all of Scripture than those that were made by Isaiah. And knowing this, I want us to listen to one of the most amazing series of statements that have ever been uttered by human lips. And as we listen, don't let the familiarity of this song keep you from hearing the staggering nature of what's actually being said. Watch this. saw some of you Nazarenes wanting to dance. It was, I mean, you know, I, I, I noticed the, before we did that uh, showing it this morning when the worship team had finished and they were up here and like Joel was like rocking out. Um, think about this. You, you know that this song by George Friedrich Handel in The Messiah is one of the most famous pieces of music in the history of the world, but Handel didn't write the lyrics, did he? Isaiah wrote the lyrics. So look with me in chapter 9, over two chapters in chapter 9 of Isaiah. Look at this. Here it is. Here's the setup. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Verse 6, 
For a child will be born to us. So remember, all the rest of the text is about a baby. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to behold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal, the power, the awesomeness of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Write it in. Think about it. It's key concept number one. These are some of the most impossible words ever thought. The child who is born and El Shaddai, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, are one and the same. Let me say it again. The child who is born and El Shaddai, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, are one and the same. That's right. The Father and the Son are one. The child and the Almighty are one. The Father is the Son and the Son is the Father. And here's an amazing implication that flows from this passage. Think of it. You hear about a child and a son for a little phrase and then you just hear awesome God. So think about it. They're one and the same. The little child is going to become the supreme authority over the government that rules the entire world. Imagine a government led by a perfect leader, a government that's perfectly balanced, perfectly attuned to the people's needs. Oh, God, come. Right? Perfectly gracious, perfectly, perfectly uh, uh, managed. This government is perfectly just, provides perfect security, perfect laws, perfect regulations, and perfect services. Imagine no line at the DMV in the millennial reign of Christ. No line. You walk in. You do your thing. They give you your license, and you leave. Imagine, and to boot, you ready? Imagine the leader having unlimited resources so he doesn't need any taxes. It's paradise, isn't it? Heaven, yeah, I hear that. I hear that witness, don't you? Uh, okay, so yeah, I mean, remember, it's the 31st, right, uh, this month. Everybody remember. Um, so no more COVID, uh, you know, delays. Um, so um, let's take a big step back and look at the incredible contrast between the Christ child that we think about at Christmas and the child that Isaiah actually spoke about. Let's think about the king that everybody hums blithely about. When God came in the flesh, he was born of peasants, a little baby, a lowly, humble teacher, a servant who washed others' feet, a migrant who never owned anything, and a broken, bleeding outcast who the world scorned as he died helplessly on a Roman cross. That's who he was. But here's the thing. The Christ child is also the divine, preexistent, otherworldly figure of power and glory, waiting to descend to the earth in his all-conquering return. You see, Jesus existed before the creation of the world. The prophets were perfect and flawless in their words. The child was born. The son wasn't born. The son was given. The son had lived from eternity past. He's the creator. The child became a human, but he had always been the son of God in the Trinity. Notice how meticulous the prophets are with their incredible theology. So what's happening? 
Before the sun and the stars were made, Jesus was there. He's the eternal one, the omnipotent one, the all-knowing one, the awesome one. And guess what? He is going to come and remove the mighty from their seats of power to dethrone the rulers of the earth. He will cast down the despots from their positions of authority and he will judge the whole world perfectly. Yes, Isaiah foretold that God would come as a child, but he also taught and prophesied that the child would grow up big time. And this gives us key concept number two. Here's your blanks, write it in. The lamb, folks, the lamb will also be the lion. In scripture, there are a few people who actually got to see the glory of God. And it's amazing how consistent their response was. Not once did they say, ah, look at the glory of God. Isn't he such a cute little thing? Never. It never looked like a manger scene when they saw the glory of God. It never looked meek and mild when they saw the glory of God. Look at the consistent response from humans who actually saw God in his glory. Let's start with the prophet Ezekiel. Look at it from Ezekiel 1 on the screen. Now above the expanse was over their heads. There was a something resembling a throne. He's seeing heaven, obviously, like blue sapphire in appearance, appearance and honor, the, uh, which resembled a throne. High up, ready? a figure with the appearance of a man. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is not yet the child, but this is the Son of God eternal, all-powerful. Ready? Then I noticed from the appearance of his waist and upward something like gleaming metal that looked like fire all around and within, and from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And look at Isaiah's awe as he saw the king in chapter 6. Look at, this, look at the text. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Remember the temple was 60 feet high? Just the little hymn is God. Holy cow. Think of the God that he could only see the hem of his garment filling the temple, ready? And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen, remember what we blithely hum? My eyes have seen the real king, the Lord of hosts. Now, you wouldn't say this around me because I've taught here enough that you know that, you know, you'll get hit upside the head. But some might say, well, those are Old Testament pictures. Jesus is different in the New Testament. Yeah, we all know that God changed when Jesus came, right? Because we all know the profound theology that God doesn't stay the same. He changes all the time, right? No, The Old Testament God is the New Testament God, and so you ready for this? You want to look at a couple of passages where the exalted Christ actually shows his power? How about the transfiguration in Matthew 17? Look at this. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And listen to the Apostle John's description when he's caught up into heaven 
and sees the vision of the exalted Christ in the Revelation. Look from chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle, central to everything, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Folks, this is the baby. And look at this. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Are we preaching that Jesus? So here's a reliable response when God sees real, when people see real God. In awe, they collapse to the ground. And this means that any true understanding of Christ requires knowing him as both the Lamb of God, who is meek and gentle Savior, and the Lion of Judah, who will come in great power to destroy all evil and rule the world. It's the balance that's the real king. But we live in a day where there's a tendency to remember the lamb, but forget the lion. Many in the church proclaim baby Jesus, but not awesome, mighty Jesus. It's Jesus is, they, they preach a nice Jesus, but not the Jesus that John saw. And to illustrate this, listen to the words of a modern-day prophet. If you weren't watching, that means pseudo-prophet, fake prophet. You ready? Who says that he's seen Jesus. He, he writes repeatedly about his, his visions of Jesus, and he's even been, been, caught, up into, been caught up into heaven once uh, to be with Jesus. His name's uh, uh, Robert Lyardon. And... Um, I want you to look at some of his writing here. Here's one of his experiences. Look on the screen. Jesus and I visited the river of life. This is when he's gotten caught up to be with Jesus in heaven. I was, it was a branch of the river that was knee deep and crystal clear. We took off our shoes and got in. And do you know the first thing that Jesus did to me? He dunked me. I got up and splashed him and we had a water fight. We splashed each other and laughed. When I get back to heaven, I'm going to put up a historical marker on the spot. It's going to say, this is the spot where Jesus Christ not only became my Lord and Savior, but my friend. Doesn't that sound like cute theology? It's just wrong. Yes, he became my friend. Now we walk and talk together. When I hear a good joke, I can run to Jesus and listen to him laugh. And when he gets back, he gets a good one. He tells me, you know what? Millions of people hear this kind of stuff and read this kind of stuff all the time. And here's the description of his in uh, one of his experiences with Christ. Ready? The third, it's on the screen, the third time I saw this, he walked through the front door of my home while I was watching Laverne and Shirley on TV. By the way, the millennials, you can laugh. It's on Nickelodeon now. You, okay, so he came over and sat down beside me on the couch, kind of glanced at the TV, and everything in this natural world clicked off. I couldn't hear the telephone or t television set. I, all I heard was Jesus in all of his glory. Then he got up, walked back through the door, and the TV clicked back on, and you ready what he did? I resumed watching Laverne and Shirley. Tag up for a minute. From the scriptures we just went through, I want us to establish the reliable response of people who really see God. Write it in. Here's your blanks. Ezekiel's response, he fell on his face. Isaiah's response, he declared, woe is me. 
the disciples' response at the transfiguration. You ready? They fell face down to the ground. And John's response, how could we ever forget that amazing text? He fell at Jesus' feet as a dead man. Listen, church. I don't know who it was that this so-called prophet saw when he had his experiences, but I can guarantee you one thing. He did not see the exalted Christ who lives in unapproachable light and whose presence the very foundations of the earth tremble at. It's inconceivable that someone who saw Christ face to face could go back to watching TV or telling jokes or having water fights. No, If he saw the real Jesus who ascended to the right hand of the Father, he would have been on his face because that is the Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. But now, why does this really matter? This incredible setup for us to remember the awesomeness of the king. I'll tell you why it matters. If we keep Jesus the meek little Child, let's return to where we began this message. Ask the question from this perspective. Why do we sing joy to the world? Certainly part of it is because of God's mercy and tenderness and grace. The lamb, certainly part of it is that. There's no question that we agree with John the Baptist who declared, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But don't forget the theology of the hymn. Joy to the world The Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Yes, the world definitely needs merciful Jesus, but you know what? We need his grace to save us from our sin, but we also need powerful Jesus, and you know why? Because we need to be saved from the power of this present darkness. Do you not see it? Are we not surrounded by it? Are there not enough... Children being trafficked around the world? Is there not awesome evil surrounding us everywhere? So, listen to the Apostle Paul's description of the spiritual reality of the world that we live in. You probably know it well. Look at it on the screen from Ephesians chapter 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, you ready? Against the rulers, against the powers against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness wickedness in heavenly places. And listen to Peter's description of the dangerous world that we live in because the enemy is trying to ruin everything. Look from 1 Peter chapter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, what's he doing? Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yes, we need the lamb to save us from our sin, but we also need the exalted Christ who can cast down the powers of evil that seek to destroy us all. C.S. Lewis brilliantly pointed out what many people naively think. You should, if Next time you read Mere Christianity, which all of us should do all the time, even though most of us only get 20% of it because he's so amazing and brilliant. But look at this. He said it this way, look on the screen. Many people don't really want an all-powerful God. Hmm, boy, does that not point a laser at the American church now. 
many people don't really want an omnipotent father whose power and might are unassailable. What many people want is a nice, benevolent, senile grandfather who, at the end of the day, really only cares that a good time was had by all. Do you know how many people serve that God? Why is God there for me? For me to be healthy and wealthy, to be happy. My God is not powerful. My God is what I want him to be. But here's the problem with that God. As inviting as it may sound for people who don't want an omnipotent God who intrudes into our lives, the alternative would actually be a disaster. It would be a disaster. In fact, the issue gives us number three, key concept number three. Here's your blank. You only have like 15 blanks this morning, so it's easy. Look at this. A nice old papa in heaven won't cut it. Listen, church. A nice old papa in heaven won't cut it. In a world where the powerful have the ability to wipe out humanity by pushing one button, in a world where the rulers have ever-increasing power to control humanity, in a world where those who hold the highest offices among the nations are ever more power-hungry, these evil rulers won't be defeated by a soft, weakling God who can only politely ask them to do the right thing. Papa God won't cut it. But here's the great news. The fact that our God isn't just a meek little baby, but also the one who spoke the universe into existence with a word means that our God has no rival. He has no competitor. No one threatens him. No one surprises him. No one frightens him. No one intimidates him. Listen, elections don't intimidate God. Washington doesn't intimidate God. They intimidate a lot of the church. But they do not intimidate God. Let me ask you, what God are you serving? Who's really in control? And let me point out another big problem with a weakling God. It's the fact that the enemy who's behind the evil rulers of this world is an even greater evil force than the human lackeys that he's manipulating for his purposes. They don't really have real power. They live and die. They get knocked off all the time. Coups occur here and there. It happens all the time. They come and go. Some of them get term limited out, right? They come and go. So, but the enemy behind them, oh, he is powerful. And so notice, the enemy of the human soul is powerful and treacherous and evil, and he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the only kind of God that could bring hope and joy to the human race is one who's so awesome that he can take out the enemy, church. Guess what? Look at key concept number three again. A nice old papa God won't do, won't cut it. We need the baby to grow up. So, here's some more great news. Since the word of God tells us how history's gonna end, we get to know what will happen in the future. We've gotten to see the end of history. Remember, you should never celebrate the first advent without looking forward to the second advent because the second advent is actually the main event. It is where all of history is headed. So look what happens in the last book of the Bible. Look from Revelation chapter 12, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, praise God. 
And these were no longer, there was no longer a place found for them, ready? And the great dragon that was thrown down, sounds all mysterious and so forth, the Bible interprets itself. So this isn't metaphorical at all. Look at this. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who declares, deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. Every day right now before the Father because that's the midpoint of the tribulation. So right now, you know what the enemy's doing? He's up there saying, God, look at all those sinners that deserve to die. And Jesus is saying, of course they do, but I already did. He's accusing us. He's accusing it. Listen, the accuser will be thrown down. It's coming. So look at verse, uh, chapter 20. Look at this text. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. I love this text. And he, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut and sealed it over him. Isn't it cool that he's not even as strong as one angel, let alone our mighty king? Look at this. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come down to deceive the nations which are the four, on the four corners of the earth. Look at this. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, the enemy is going to fall. But Papa God, nice old Papa God, meek little baby alone, wouldn't be able to do it. Oh, we don't want just meek Jesus. We want awesome Jesus so let me give you a quick review of the book of Revelation. Ready? In chapter 12, Satan's thrown out of heaven. In chapter 18, Antichrist's great city of Babylon is overthrown. In chapter 19, the Antichrist and all of his armies of the world are defeated by the glorious appearing of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. And in chapter 20, we just heard it, Satan is first cast into to the abyss, and then finally, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Church, this gives us our last key concept, key concept number four, write it in. Because we have God's word, we've seen Satan fall. Praise God. Because we have God's word, we've seen Satan fall. The enemy has been defeated, and we have absolute confidence that Jesus will reign. Pastor Josiah, come on up. Let me say that again. Because we have God's word, we've seen Satan fall. The enemy has been defeated. And we have absolute confidence that Jesus will reign. I want us to see a brief snapshot of the glory, the victory that's coming when the Father says, Jesus, it's time. It's time, Jesus, for you to banish the enemy. It's time to set everything right. Jesus, it's time for you to take out the beast. Jesus, it's time to go back and be the perfect king on a perfect earth that you reign over. Listen to what Ezekiel says will happen to the enemy and his armies on that day. Look at the text. This is magnificent. And in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth and everyone on the face of the earth will shake at 
my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him, the Antichrist, inhabited by Satan. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord. With pestilence and blood, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with hailstone, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. I I love the way the Apostle Paul emphasizes how little effort this event will require on God's part. Have you ever really paid attention to the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians where it says, then the lawless one, okay, that's the Antichrist inhabited by Satan, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. That's right. The baby who is the lamb, but who's now the lion, is so powerful that he will slay Satan with the breath of his mouth. It'll be just one puff of air, and Satan will be gone forever. Now listen, none of us know when that day will be. But we do know this for sure. That day is coming. And Christ will descend and his majesty will no longer be hidden, and his power will no longer be cloaked, and his greatness will be fully revealed, and every eye will behold him. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This morning, the eternal word of God has declared that the enemy will be cast down. His dominion is on the verge of collapse, the accuser of our souls has been banished. The evil one, friends, he will fall. His authority is on its last leg. His reign of terror is almost over. His days, friends, are numbered. The enemy's days are numbered. Aren't you glad that our king will conquer the enemy? So why do we sing joy to the world? Because our king is awesome. Our king is untouchable in his power. Our king has conquered. Our king is in control. Our king is the victor. Our king has won. Why can we sing joy to the world? Because the little Christ child grew up and he's conquered death in the grave. And because he ascended to the right hand of the father and now reigns in great power. And because of this, friends, the enemy has been defeated. Stand with me, church. And if you don't know this song, it's easy because you say the enemy has defeated, been defeated and then you sing awesome God. And if you don't know that, you'll know it in one time. So stand and let's announce his defeat together. 